Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasts. Who else is watching you heal? Welcome or welcome back to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I am here with my guest, Susan. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Where would you like me to start? (laughs) What I can say is that I, at the time, in 1985, I was 17 years old. My dad was a Los Angeles police detective, Thomas C. Williams. He, uh, had testified that day in a case that he was working on. The perpetrator was out on bail at the time of his trial. And on Halloween night, he went to my brother's school. My brother was six years old at the time and laid in wait. And my dad came out with my brother to put him in the car at the end of the night. It was about five five thirty that night, put him in the car, came around the car and realized that there was a gun sticking out of this car. And he knew it was going to happen. So he turned to my brother and told him to duck down. And the guy drove by and shot my dad. My mom and I were at home. It was Halloween. So she had come home and was taking off her she was the tin man that she, that year so she was taking off her makeup and her costume for the day and i was putting mine on so a phone rang the phone rang in the house and of course being a teenager i thought it's got to be for me right who's going to call my parents so i ran to the phone and i picked it up and it was a lady from my brother's school on the other line and all she said to me was that there was a drive-by shooting and my dad was involved and nothing else. And I quickly handed the phone to my mom and she picked up the phone and I could see her posture change. And she was still taking her makeup off. She hung up the phone and she looked at me and said, we've got to go. We got to go to the school. So we jumped in the car and the, the school was about five minutes away. And it was the longest five minutes. We didn't speak to each other, not one word. And when we got there, there was a lot of police activity around. We parked the car in the driveway um, or in the parking lot. And all the kids were picked up on the backside of the school. So we headed towards the backside. And that's where we saw my dad's truck. So both of us made a beeline towards the truck. And when we got up there, we witnessed his body and it was partially covered, but it was still there. The ambulance was there. And there was a police officer that was trying to hold my mom back and she had dropped to her knees screaming. And I was just in such shock. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know how to navigate what was 
going on in my head. And we were brought back to an office and my mom was taken away by some police officers. Most of the police officers that were walking around were in tears. And I sat there by myself in this in this office and could overhear a conversation going on because I was still trying to put together in my head why there was an ambulance there. Why weren't they helping him? And I couldn't, you know, so I was just sitting there and I, I didn't know how to process what was going on. And I could hear these ladies talking. And the one lady said that my dad was deceased. And it was like my brain fractured. I I had I didn't want to be there anymore. I, I just wanted to run, like physically run. And the other part of me was I couldn't move. Like my legs just gave out from underneath me. I couldn't move. And I I, I was shaking at this point and I was scared because now my security level was gone too. And my mom came to me and she said, I'm sending you with a neighbor. A part of me felt like, but where's my brother? Is he hurt? What did he see? I, I want to be with my brother. I want to stay with my family, with my mom and my brother. And that was not happening. I was going with the neighbor. So that night, I got picked up by the neighbor and brought to their house. And I had to navigate all of this these emotions by myself. So I, I just immediately felt like I was alone in this. So I had the neighbor call my boyfriend at the time who was working and he came to the house and she didn't really go into what happened. She just said that my, my dad had been shot, but did not tell him that he had died. So when he came to the house, he was like, okay, get your coat. You know, we're going to go to the hospital. What hospital is he at? You know, and he's trying to be helpful. And he, you know, and he had known him only for three months. We had been dating three months and he was 19 at the time. He said, let's just go, you know, let's just go. I'm going to take you to the hospital. It's going to be okay, whatever. And I said, you don't understand. He's not at a hospital. You know, he's gone. And he's like, What do you mean he's gone? Like, let's just go. And I said, No, you don't understand. He's gone. You know, my boyfriend, who is now my husband, had the same reaction my mom did. You know, he kind of dropped to his knees. So the both of us together were trying to navigate all of this as kids, you know. And the poor neighbor, I mean, she tried to do what she could do to try to support us and and be there. But, you know, initially, like, I think even he was like, where is your mom? Like, where, what's going on? You know, so it was, uh, it was, it was something that I wouldn't wish on anyone because my quiet little neighborhood became something that I didn't recognize. Um, there were police officers everywhere. I could hear the the helicopters flying over. Unbeknownst to us, we were in danger and we had no idea. So 
when I was able to get home, like there were people all in my living room that I'd never seen before. I could hear faintly my mom's voice, but I couldn't see her. You know, there were just too many people around and I just wanted to hide at this point. Right. Is this a small town? No, it's not. You know, it's Southern California. It's in the San Fernando Valley. I grew up in Canoga Park, um, Canoga Park, West Hills area. And it, you know, it's, it's a pretty big community. But in the annals of LAPD, not one officer had ever been assassinated in the way my dad was. So it was for everyone a brand new experience. And I don't think any of us knew how to deal with it. And, and for me, I I felt like I had to navigate all of this by myself. And so it was very difficult for me to even understand what was going on. I mean, this was the 80s, so there was no there was no mental health talk back then. There was no programs, there was no no social support media. system, there was nothing out there that could support or there was no talk about PTSD. You know, there was nothing known about any of that. So all of the emotions that I was feeling, I just felt like I was out of control. You know, like when is this when is this roller coaster going to stop? And and being as young as I was and and actually and same with my husband, you know, who was my boyfriend at the time, neither one of us knew. And even his parents were like I don't know what to say. I don't know how to I don't know how to support you in this. I, I, you know, we can love you and, and, and everything, but we, we don't know how to deal with this either. So it was, it was a very difficult time for sure. Oh, absolutely. I can only imagine he must've been following your dad then, because how else would he know where your brother's school was? So (laughs) getting to the case part. Um, when they finally, it took them six days to finally catch the men that were involved. Initially, there were nine men. This was a conspiracy. They planned my dad's death for months. What? The main perpetrator, um, and I don't use names because that's about taking my power back. He had a robbery ring. And so he had a lot of men around him that were his secondaries, that were his helpers, that were, and he, um, you know, he was all about the flash and the cash and, and some of these men were attracted to that and they wanted that. And so he had this robbery ring and he had a limousine service that was the front business. And the initial case uh, my dad was working on, they had tried to ribe, uh, rob a UA theater manager while he was making a night drop, deposit drop. And the gun had jammed in the robbery. They panicked and drove away. And so that was my dad's initial case. 
And so the main perpetrator's whole mindset was if there's no witnesses, there's no case. So they actually had the UA theater manager because he was going to testify. Uh, They put a hit out on him first. And they actually had a, a hitman go in while he was at lunch. And they shot him several times. And he almost died, but he survived. And, you know, my dad immediately put surveillance on him and did everything he could to protect the man because nobody knew that this perpetrator was capable of doing something like this at the time. But what we realized actually later down the road during the trial is that my dad was actually in the middle of investigating his own murder because he was looking at phone records and things like that. And that's what the discussions were at the time. They followed all of us for months. They wanted to know our daily activities, when we got home. Um, They took pictures. Our house was actually directly across from a mall. So it gave them an opportunity to do recon across the street and take pictures of my house. Um, They followed me from school. And, you know, all of this came out in the trial. But we had no idea, you know. We just knew that he was the absolute target that night. And he could have killed my brother. My my dad saved my brother's life. When did you get to see your brother again? I didn't see him until the next day. If you can imagine, he was just still in shock. And he, I could hear him crying at night, but, and I wanted to help him, but I didn't know how, because I was so, I was a mess myself. And I just assumed my mom would be, my mom would take care of him since he was so little. And so I, you know, I, I just did what I could do to get up in the morning. Right. You guys are all broken and it's, it's, it's a lot. That is a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot, but you know, here's the thing. I, (laughs) I tell the story all the time. I just spoke actually at a convention for LAPD last weekend. And what I made them aware of is that, you know, back then, yeah, we had no help. You know, there was really nothing. And so LAPD decided about a month after my dad was killed that we should go into therapy. Well, I had no idea what therapy was. I'm a teenager, right? To me, if you went to therapy or a therapist, you're crazy. There's something wrong with you, right? And so I just, I didn't know what I was doing, but I followed the lead. My mom said, you know, this is what they said we needed to do. And so we're going to do it. And I saw this guy for a year. And unfortunately, uh, at the time that I was seeing him, I was experiencing everything with PTSD. Anxiousness, severe depression, suicidal ideation. I kept making lists in my head about what are the ways that I can end my life 
so I could be with my dad. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that that was suicidal ideation. You know, there was, again, no terminology, no, there was nothing out there. So all I knew was the physical things that I was experiencing and the stuff that was swirling around in my head. And that's all I knew. But unfortunately, this guy, he wanted to, all of his sessions were very shallow. And all he wanted to ask me about was my relationship with my mother, my relationship with my brother, my boyfriend, and school. And that was it. Like, And I was young enough where I didn't know how to verbalize all the stuff that was going on with me at the time. So I didn't say anything. Because in my mind, I thought, okay, this guy's a professional and he's an adult. He's going to help me. And he didn't. He wasn't asking the right questions. No, he didn't ask any of the right questions. He never asked me what that night, literally never asked me what that night did to me, how it affected me. Never. So I never had an in. I never had a question that would allow me to be vulnerable with him and start telling him all the things that were going on in my head. So after a year, he looked at me and said, you're a well-rounded young lady and you're going to be fine for the rest of your life. And I don't need to see you anymore. Wow. And I thought, wait, 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 wait. I'm a hot mess. Like... (laughs) I have all of this stuff still swirling in my head. Like, how can I be well-rounded? Like, how can I be fine for the rest of my life? So then the mindset was, okay, well, I guess I'm broken. I'm just, I'm just crazy. Like, I just cracked. And this is just a normal for me. And I'm just going to have to deal with this myself. I'm just going to have to move through life with all this stuff. And I did that. I did that for 14 years. Wow. You know, in hindsight, and even writing my book, I realized, wow, because of that, because I didn't start to heal, I think my relationships could have been differently. It could have been different. I was in fight or flight for 14 years of my life and sometimes freeze, you know, where I just was like, I kind of gave up a couple of times. And when we moved to Colorado, I was now almost 30. I had two children married to the boyfriend. (laughs) I do Uh, love that, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I'm married now, and two years into us living in Colorado, Columbine happens. And I was a hairdresser at the time. Um, I had put my customer under the dryer, and I went into the back to take a, a small break, turned on our little tiny TV, and the coverage came up. And as I was sitting there watching it, I started having flashbacks of the night my dad was killed. And I saw, you know, the teenagers on the TV, and those were like me, and all the ambulances and the 
fire department, in the you know police department, and all the things that were going on. And I, I literally started to shake. I I had anxiety through the roof. I turned pale white, and my coworker who didn't know my story came to me and said, "Are you okay? What's going on with you? Do you have kids there?" Do you live in that neighborhood? And I said, "No. I I don't know what's happening to me. I I don't know what to do. Like <laughs> I I didn't know what was going on. And I did what I always did, was put my mask on. I put my mask on that everything was fine. Went back, did my customer, left through the door at the end of the day. And all of the suicidal ideation, the depression, the everything came flooding back to me. Anxiety. And for four days, I kept saying, this is going to go away. And for four days, it did not. And finally, my husband met me at the door and he said, you have two choices. You either get help or I'm putting you in a hospital. Because I was spiraling. And he was scared. It was a slippery slope, is what he says. So I did. I went to the doctor and he put me on antidepressants because that's what they do. And the next thing he said to me was, and you need to find a therapist. And I went, wait a minute. (laughs) Been there, done that. I'm good for life. (laughs) Like he told me I was fine. So... You know, he was just like, nope, you need to see a therapist. And, you know, so I was like, all right, I'll try again. And I went and saw this female therapist. And thank God Almighty, the woman specialized in PTSD. So, (laughs) right, right. So I went in there and I kind of, my first session, I I gave her a snippet because I don't want to overwhelm them. That's why I said strap yourself in. Um, so I I didn't want to overwhelm her all the way, but I just gave her a snippet of everything that I've kind of gone through. And she looked at me and she said, everything you've gone through since you were 17 is 100% normal because you have PTSD. And I thought, wait a minute, how can I have PTSD? I didn't go to war. I'm not in the military. You know, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a first responder. Like how, how do I have PTSD? And she said, well, because any person that goes through a traumatic experience can experience PTSD. And that is when the sky opened up and rainbows shot out because I finally had answers. And now I knew, oh my gosh, I'm not fine for the rest of my life. <laughs> I actually, like, there, there is something that I can do now and start my healing journey. And that's when it started. Isn't it crazy how excited that you could be to find out there's something wrong with you? Yes. Like- the only time probably ever you're like, thank God. Yes. Yeah. Because for so long, I just thought I was crazy. You know, I also lived with a mom that, you know, I watched her 
deal with her pain through drinking. And she would say things like, therapy is for you and your brother. Like, you're broken. I'm not. (laughs) So it just kind of reiterated that. And I write that in my book, you know, that's part of the healing process of understanding that I am not crazy, that this is what happened. And my brain that night was hurt, was damaged. And now I just have to figure out the ways to start to heal it. So initially, we started out with journaling. And I thought that was really interesting to me because I didn't think about it, you know, and she just said journaling can be done in different ways. So you find what works for you. So for some people, it's writing, such as myself. And for some people, it's art. And for some people, it's music. Like, listen to half the music that people write out there, you know, that these artists are coming up with. That's their journaling. They're telling a story about what's going on with them or what they've seen or whatever. So that was a big eye opener for me because I thought, huh, and what is the significance to journaling? And she said, because you're getting what's swirling around in your head out. And I was like, wow, something so simple that anybody can do can change your mindset. Right. It's an outlet. It is an outlet. So I I started off with that. You know, she was like, let's just dip our toes, shall we? Because we got a lot of work to do. And then I did some EMDR. Um, did you find that beneficial? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Also did a little bit of tapping techniques for the anxiety to ground myself. We did tapping and breathing techniques to help reground myself and get my state in a better place when I was anxious. And I always tell people it's not a one size fits all. I mean, when I wrote my book, I figured if I can connect with one person and they can take something, I call it kind of my cliff notes (laughs) because The first part, my book is in two parts, and the book's called The Other Side of the Gun, My Journey from Trauma to Resiliency, for a reason. The first part of the book is about the trauma. It's about all the trauma that I've gone through, and the second is how I got through it, the second part. I love that. That's basically what my whole show is about. What (laughs) happened and how did you fix yourself? How did you start on your healing journey? So I love that. And I tell you, like writing a book. So it took me four and a half years to write my book. And the reason it did is because there was a lot of fear behind writing this book for many reasons. One, I knew that once I wrote my truth, that other people's truths would come out and they may not like it. (laughs) The other side of that was there was still a security issue, you know, because the, the men that were involved, even though they're incarcerated, some of them, 
there's still that element out there. There's still, you know, that element. So I was scared about that. So as I was diving, and the other fear, the biggest fear, was that if I'm going to dive this deep and really feel all of the emotions and everything all over again, I better come out of it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I better. And so I waited until I was 50. So I'm 54 now. And you do not look it at all. <laughs> I never would have thought you were 50. I'm actually, I'll be 55 next month. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to be a speed limit. That's just sad. Um, anyways, <laughs> I, I just dove into it um, knowing that I had the tools now. I knew that I was strong enough to be able to dive into this and I would be okay. But there was still so much fear behind it. And in diving, you know, and writing and writing, what I realized was that every time I had that trepidation, every time I felt myself pull back, I had to find a purpose on the other side of this book. And that purpose was that I was going to help other people. There were other people that needed to hear my story. And that needed to know what resiliency looks like and give them hope. So anytime I started that path and I started like pulling back, I would just put those people in front of me. And that was my purpose. And that purpose allowed me to drive through that fear and continue to keep going. And so I, I, I have a tagline, bulldoze your fear, because fear holds you back from everything in your life, everything. So in writing this book, that's, that's what I had to do. I had to do that and remind myself that I do have the tools to come out of this mindset. Now, there were days, I'm a realtor by trade, so there were days where I was like, I had to give myself grace. It was, you know, it was like, I, I'm done. Like, I have nothing left. I can't go do real estate. I can't talk to clients right now. I had to give myself a day. Like, just do something for myself that makes me feel good in a positive way. And tomorrow's another day. You know, and I think that's the other side is people don't understand that you do have to give yourself grace along the way. Yeah, you're going to have good days, but you are still going to have bad days. Absolutely. And that's okay. Yep. And the other the other side of this is that I I was so at this book I am very vulnerable. <laughs> I put it all out there, all of it. And I had to have the understanding that once that book got out there, that there's going to be people that aren't going to like what I have to say. They're not going to agree with what I have to say. And I have to be okay with that. So good, bad, or indifferent, right? It's your story to tell. It is. It's my story to tell. But other people, you know, everybody has gone through trauma. I was reading a statistic and they said 36% of the population will have experienced something traumatic in their life in their lifetime. 
I would think actually the percentage would be higher. I think it's skewed myself. But if you think about it, there's probably people that are walking around that have gone through trauma that don't even realize they've gone through trauma. So I feel like maybe that is skewed those numbers a bit because there's still people out there that don't realize whatever it is they've gone through was trauma. Right. Mm -hmm. Did your brother get help? Yes. So I was just talking to him this morning. So my brother and my mother, they took the route of the victim and they both went into addiction. My brother dealt with addiction and he made some bad choices in his life and got himself into some trouble and came with shame. And, but now he's doing amazing. He's on his journey of healing. He's been in therapy on and off his whole life. He too experienced therapists that said, oh, you're going to be fine. And he's not. You know, clearly he's had stackable uh, trauma in his life just due to things that he's seen. And he definitely is starting to do some serious work when it comes to his trauma. And I'm so proud of him. I call him my Hercules. He is, you know, he's my little hero. He's not little. He's a big guy. That's why I call him Hercules. But You know, he's my big little brother (laughs) because we're 10 years apart. So, but I'm so proud of him. You know, I'm so proud of where he's, where he's going and presently who he is. And, you know, my dad would be so proud of him. I'm sure he is just because Ryan has always felt like he's had to live up to his dad's legacy. And none of us can do that. You know what I mean? My dad was my dad. And, you know, I hear stories about him. And I I do say that I am my father's daughter in the way that he loved to help others. He loved to help people. He loved to teach and kind of take guys under his wing. When he died, he they they called him the cop's cop. The other reason behind this book, too, is because there's still so much anger and pain in the law enforcement community when it comes to his death. And I felt like if they see me and they see the resiliency side and they know what I've gone through, but they see that I'm okay on the other side, then maybe I'm giving them permission to heal themselves. And that's kind of what last weekend was about, was talking to these police officers and, you know, and they were actually delegates, reminding them that, yeah, I went through all of this and it was not easy, but look what I'm doing now, you know, and I'm here to help you heal and understand and find some peace. And so I was very humbled last weekend. It was a very humbling weekend (laughs) because people were thanking me for writing this book and thanking me for coming to speak. That is all I've ever, that's my purpose. So that's all I've ever wanted was that. 
You have such a genuine, beautiful soul and it like comes across. And that is just, that's amazing. Thank you. I just, you know, I, I really feel like I've had many conversations with people who have gone through trauma, different kinds of trauma. And we all kind of have an agreement that once you've healed from your trauma, it's almost like the next step is to help others. And you probably understand that. It's once you've gotten to a place where you feel peaceful, you want that for other people. So I feel like it's not like an obligation, but I feel like it's the next step. It's a drive. It's a drive. Exactly. So when I have these conversations, even though I feel like maybe they're, I'm, I'm not getting to them or I'm not making a difference, I kind of am. You know, and I think I always try to make a safe space for people. So if I tell my story and I'm vulnerable with them and I tell my story, that they too can do that same thing. And that's what I spoke about last weekend was vulnerability is not weakness. It's not. It's actually being brave. It's actually putting yourself out there in a way that most people don't want to do it. You know, they want to hide, you know, they want to hide. They they don't want to say anything. And I was like that for a while, but that's because I didn't have the understanding yet. And I was still learning to not be in fight or flight. California has the largest population in the United States and the site of some of the most famous true crime cases in history. But there's more than meets the eye to the crime in California. Join Sean, Jessica, and Charles on the California True Crime Podcast as they cover crime both infamous and overlooked from around our state while looking at the deeper history that goes beyond beaches and movie stars. So scary to be vulnerable. I mean, it is there. You, that goes back to the fear, you know. Yeah. Everyone is scared. You feel naked, like mm-hmm. literally. So, funny story. So, when I first wrote the book, and I'm in Colorado, people asked me, "What was it like? What was it like to push the go button and have your entire life out there, just raw and out there?" And I said, okay, well, let me give you a visual. So what it feels like, we have a major highway here. It's called I-25. And in rush hour, it is like bumper to bumper, right? So picture yourself buck naked on the side of the road during rush hour on I-25. It's You're out there. You can't take anything back. (laughs) It's just is right so wherever you are like just picture that highway and you're na- naked at the you know on the side of the highway well there was probably uh about a month ago i drive for lyft as well part time you know a little extra income and i was on i25 during rush hour 
and there was all of this police activity on the side of the road, and I didn't know what was going on. And when I turned my head, there was a naked man on the side of the road at rush hour. Now, it right I, 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 I really had a struggle with this because part of me was like, oh, that poor man, like he's going through something, right? Clearly not. And the other side of me was like, oh my God, that's my visual. Like I was laughing and then feeling guilty about laughing because I also felt sorry for this gentleman. So, but I mean, there it was, the visual right there. It was right there in front of me. So I had to laugh. I was just like, wow. Oh my God, somebody took your advice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be vulnerable today. Oh my God. Yeah. Let's not do that, folks. Um, You can be vulnerable in other ways. You don't have to do it that way. But yeah, I mean, but that's what it felt like. I remember getting my first reviews on Amazon and I was like, okay, Susan, just like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And it has been. I mean, I, I did get one partially negative review. And everybody else had a problem with it. Everybody else were texting me, are you okay? Are you okay? Did you read it? Did did you read it? Are you okay? And I'm like, <laughs> I, I I will read it. And I'm sure I'll be fine. But then I read it. And, you know, for a negative review, I got three and a half stars. <laughs> so <laughs> it's really not as negative as, you know, it could be. But it was also coming from someone that I could recognize that it was a good thing that I triggered her. You know, it was a good thing, not a bad thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to be vulnerable, you've got to really understand, too, that people might beat you up for it. Those are the people who are hurt themselves. Absolutely. Hurt people hurt people. That I say that almost every week. I swear to God, every week that phrase comes out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. So it's time that we start healing the hurt. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It's very interesting because it came out of that conference. Really? Um, yeah. Which gave me a lot of because I have some feelings about law enforcement stuff and. I will say that, you know, I I feel like we're making some progress and I'm hoping that it continues, but it's absolutely true. I think it's important that we come from curiosity, but, you know, we don't live in a world right now where people want to understand what's going on. They don't want to understand that that person has gone through hell in their life and, Maybe they're making some bad choices or they're saying some things to you. And then you have another person on the other side that has been, you know, through childhood trauma or whatever, and they're getting triggered to death. (laughs) So, you know, it's just a part of the human condition. Once I get on stages, that is it for me. I, that is, I know in my heart that that's my purpose. And my biggest goal is to talk to 10,000 people. And most people think I'm nuts when I say that because that's one of the biggest fears is public speaking. But I feel like this is what 
I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm my message is important for people to hear. And even if I'm standing on that stage with 10,000 people, if I can connect with one and change their life in some sort of way, I've done my job. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I feel like this is my purpose. This is what I'm meant to do. Mm -hmm. And I love it. I love hearing about the journey because no two journeys are going to be the same. Nope. But we all want what's best for ourselves and everyone else once we're finally at that line. Exactly. And that's the beautiful part of it. It comes from something so ugly. But it turns into something so beautiful. Yeah. To say things like, my purpose was in my dad's death. And oh my gosh, some people would look at me like, how could you say that? How could you say that? That's kind of saying like, you were, you, you were happy that this happened. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that is not what I'm saying. Mm. What I'm saying is that this is the cards I was dealt. And learning to heal from it, move through it, and being able to help other people through my experience, that's what I mean. That's the purpose. And my dad had a purpose in his, his death because policies started to change. Now, I don't personally feel comfortable that they used to use my dad's situation in training new officers, from the time it happened, I have always been, just like that night, pushed aside. It took the media two days to figure out he had a teenage daughter when it first happened. And throughout the years, there was always something where I was like, I felt like I wasn't important. I wasn't important in this circle of people. And so I felt like when I wrote my book, I was like, now people are going to hear my side because it's people find that if they want to purchase. So it's on Amazon. It's either in paperback form or I do have it in Kindle as well. I am working working on the audiobook. <laughs> I will be doing it myself. I've had too many people tell me that I need to be the one to read my own book. So I am going to do it. You have I the just, voice for it, so that'll thank be you. good. Thank you. Uh, thank you. So I I definitely am going to do it. I'm my oldest is very much into audiovisual stuff. So I'm going to have her help me. <laughs> Because I, I I need help. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a techie person at all. <laughs> I hear that. I've had to teach myself how to do all of this through yeah. some serious yeah. blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> yeah, podcasting is a whole like other animal. I feel like this is a great way to put your story out. It's a good way to help people connect with what you're saying, and so I've enjoyed it. It's an important outlet, and it's crazy that this didn't even exist. Look how easy this is. You're on the other side of the country, and I'm like, hi. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Getting back to blowing through your fear. I was out in California in July as well. 
I had a speaking engagement there and a book signing. And while we were there, I had told my husband before we leave, I need, we need to go see dad. And after that, I had told my husband, you know, we need to go to the school. Now understand anytime I've gone anywhere near that school, my anxiety levels just shoot through the roof and I become sick to my stomach. I have a pit in my stomach and I, I really struggle. I thought, but there is a placard LAPD a few years back um, decided that they were going to put placards up on the streets where officers were killed in line of duty. So my dad's is on the street that's in front of the school. My dad was killed on the back of the school. So the street that that is in front is called Farallone. And the main street is Sadaquay. And so this placard is on the other side of the Sadaquay sign. So we went up there and I felt pretty peaceful. Found the placard, took a picture, felt pretty good. So I thought, I'm going to see how far I can push myself. And unbeknownst to my poor husband, I was driving. So I said, we need to go one more place. And he's like, oh, okay. So I started to drive up Farallone in front of the school, and I started to make a right on the street that connects the two. And he was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He started getting anxious. He started freaking out. And I said, just give me a minute. And I drove up and I made a ride on Glade and I went up the street, turned my car around and parked and proceeded to describe to my husband everything I saw that night, where I came out of, where my dad's truck was, where the ambulance sat, where the police officers like were walking around, all of it. And he, poor guy, like he was losing his mind, but he was just listening to me, right? For the first time in my life, there was not one ounce of me that was anxious. I was completely at peace. And I thought to myself, I never thought this would happen ever, ever, ever. And the fact that it did, like if there is not an example of blowing through your fear, Mm -hmm. I don't know what is. (laughs) Oh, but you know, I I feel like that's an important piece to this because I felt like I came full circle and what writing my book did for me personally is priceless. Yes. Took my life back from that night. If I can do this, other people can do it as well. You are inspiring. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. I, I am. I'm so glad. I, 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 I love this. I love connecting with podcasters who understand. They understand where I'm coming from. And I think that's important. I think the work that you're doing, Tiffany, is important. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It's very important. I was just telling my husband this. To go through these things and to to try to help others, you actually take on a lot of responsibility. And it's not easy. That's not easy. Coaching on the side too, right? You I do. Where do you have time for all this? Oh, I know. It's so crazy. I'm just starting my coaching business, actually. 
I'm trying to go to school. I'm taking neuro-linguistic programming uh, courses. And uh, yeah, I'm already starting to coach people and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I feel like that is my calling and speaking is my calling as well. It's amazing what happens when you heal and you're able to help heal the people you love around you. You know, unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that with my mom, but I'm helping my brother do it. You know, that's amazing. Now is the time where I could be the big sister, really help my brother in a way that I was not able to do when we were young. Right. Another important part of the healing process is who's watching you heal. Yeah, that's powerful. Who else is watching you heal? Who else is being inspired by what they see? I hope lots of people. Yeah, right? Exactly. So you and I are in the same boat. It's like, you know, this is our purpose and it's important. And our message is clear and our our message is important to hear. And people need to understand that they're not alone. I talked to people about the depression part. I said, you know, honestly... Smile at people. We got to get back to that. Uh Everybody is in their device the whole time. You know, we've lost the connection within each other. So, so happy that you came on. (laughs) I am too. I've enjoyed this conversation for sure. Yes, me too. For sure. (laughs) Good, good. I'm so glad. So glad. Yes. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I think that's it. I think we talked about the book. Um, I do have a website okay. uh, that people can go to. If if they feel inclined to contact me, they could do it through the website. And it's easy. It's SusanSnowSpeaks.com. <laughs> I'll put all the links in the show notes too. Perfect. And, you know, and so they can contact me through that. If you have any uh, listeners who think that I would be a good fit to speak, they can contact me through my website as well. Perfect. If you know anyone who could benefit off of this episode, please share it with them. All the links will be in the bottom of the show notes. Make sure you are liking, following, subscribing. Leave that five-star review. All right. We'll talk crime another time. Bye.